0: Merdeka,
1: Merdeka, Merdeka. The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia?
0: One hundred percent confident, Indonesia will prevail.
1: Hello and welcome to the Talkie Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. And today we focus on Indonesia's fight against illegal, undocumented and unregulated fishing. Illegal fishing became one of the most prominent issues of the first-term Jokowi government, in part because of repeated confrontations at sea with the fishing fleets and Coast Guard of China and Vietnam, which we've covered in previous Talking Indonesia episodes, but more notably owing to the hardline enforcement approach of President Jokowi's first-term fisheries minister, Suzy Pujiestuti. Susie's use of explosives to sink seized foreign vessels and her high media profile made her one of President Jokowi's most popular ministers, but she was not reappointed in Jokowi's second-term cabinet. How did Susie transform Indonesia's fisheries industry during her tenure, and what does her replacement tell us about the sustainability of her approach to combating illegal fishing? To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Dr. Fabio Scarpello, Lecturer in Politics and International Relations in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Auckland and the author of a study on the political economy of the fisheries industry in Indonesia. Fabio, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today.
0: Thanks very much for having me.
1: Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. And now, can I start by asking you, how great was this problem of illegal, unregulated and undocumented fishing, so-called IUU fishing? at the outset of the Jokowi administration?
0: I think it is fair to say that it was a huge problem, at least on three levels. From an economic perspective, there have been uh, quite a few studies that quantified the level of the problem. One such a study was by the Ministry of Marine Affairs and Fishery itself. As it said it was about 300 trillion rupiah loss a year, and that is about 25% of the total potential of the Indonesian fishery. Other studies say about $3 billion or up to $20 billion a year. So financially, economically, it was a, it was a huge issue. It was also a problem at societal level in the sense that the illegal fishing depleted the fish stock. And there was a problem at the environmental level, but also for the small-scale fisher folks, which had much less fish to catch, and this impacted in their livelihood.
1: Sure, sure. And, you know, I think you set out very well in the journal article you've, you've written about this problem of illegal fishing in Indonesia, the way that the state of the industry, the state of illegal fishing had developed over many decades. Given the scale of the problem that you're outlining, um, why was this such a intractable problem for so many governments in Indonesia to address?
0: Now, as you correctly say, I think the roots of the problem are historical and essentially are rooted in the neglect of the state on the fishery industry in Indonesia that you know arches back to the Dutch period. The Dutch were essentially only interested in exploiting land-based resources and they paid absolutely no attention to the fishery. And that carried on even with the, during the Sukarno era. He paid very little attention to the fishery. And what happened is that with this neglect, this opened a space for illegal practices to take place by large-scale Asian vessels that entered Indonesian waters. And that created this first layer of illegality. This partly changed during the Zulato era, when we saw a partial modernization of the fishery industry, No least driven by international donors. And at that stage, the industry became more interested in export to foreign markets. And it started attracting the attention of mid-sized Indonesian investors. And this started creating some tension in the political economy of the industry between these foreign vessels that fished illegally and the domestic investors that were starting to get some interest in the industry. So what happened as well is that around the 1980s, early 1980s, with the signing of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, Indonesia was granted sovereignty over the exclusive economic zones. And this created the situation in which these foreign vessels started needing Indonesian intermediaries to fish in those waters. So this, this whole situation led to a context in which there was really some commingle of interest between foreign large investors and local intermediaries. And more or less, this is the political economy that Jokowi found because all the governments, uh, post-Reformasi, from B.B. to Wahid, to Megawati and Yudhoyono, really continued paying very little attention comparatively to the fishery industry. So as Jokowi uh, took power, he found a situation in which the large-scale segment of the industry was essentially dominated by foreign investors, although at some level through local intermediaries, The price of the fish at the international market was increasing exponentially. So even from a state-led political economy, it became more and more important. And also, we should remember that, you know, with Jokowi, we saw a return of uh, domestic politics tinted by strong nationalistic tones. So that also played a role in uh, putting the spotlight on the fishery industry for a while.
1: We often hear, I guess, in Indonesian discussion of the fisheries industry, the the term fishing mafia thrown around. When people talk about a fishing mafia, are they talking about these foreign investors? Are they talking about the local intermediaries or or what does this refer to?
0: Well, it's a combination of both. By the fishery mafia, it is usually intended these... uh, set of interests that sees foreign, foreign vessels, foreign investors, and local intermediaries operating largely illegally in cohort with the security apparatus, whether it is the Navy, whether it is the police, and so on and so forth. So usually it is this sort of set of social relations operating within a contest of illegality that sees foreigners as well as local intermediaries, the police, the Navy, and the military.
1: When President Jokowi was elected and we saw him appoint Susie Pugiestuti, a business person perhaps best known publicly for her aviation interests prior to becoming minister, do you think he had a specific idea of taking on this set of interests who who were controlling the fisheries industries? Or does the fairly hardline set of enforcement policies we then saw under Susie Pugiestuti, which I, I think would be familiar to anyone with even a passing interests in Indonesia, does that simply reflect her personal convictions or or the set of interests that she happened to represent when she came into the role?
0: I think at some level, Jokowi did have some inclination in taking on this set of interests, especially because they were clearly led by foreign interests. And as I said, the nationalist tones of Jokowi's politic did play a role in that. That said, I don't think he was particularly strong. And also, I don't think that the choice of Susi was really driven by specific politics that Jacobi wanted to implement in the fishery industry. The narrative out there is that Jacobi chose Susie because she was not associated with a particularly political party she had a strong personality and essentially because he wanted to shake up the fishery industry i did not have uh, in my research many confirmation of that really the narrative that emerged from the people that i talked to was actually that uh, susi was kind of imposed on jokowi susi's close friend of megawati sukarnoputri that you know everybody knows is former president and the leader of pdip party And Jacobi ran under the banner of PDIP parter, although Megawati's endorsement was quite lukewarm in 2014. And several sources, and I would say, you know, quite well-informed sources said that Megawati imposed SUSI on Jacobi as a sort of payback for the endorsement. So I think that needs to be taken into consideration as well and in light also what happened afterwards in the second term of Jokowi's presidency when Susi wasn't confirmed in her post.
1: Do we see any evidence in Susie's background of a particular interest in fisheries prior to becoming the, the Maritime Affairs and Fisheries Minister in Jokowi's first term cabinet?
0: Before uh, business interest in the aviation industry, she ran a lobster export Business, So she had some experience of the fishery industry and in some contacts for sure. So, you know, there is some, through that lens, there is a, a degree of logic of choosing her, but not much beyond that, really.
1: Now, as I mentioned, obviously, uh, under Susie Pugiestuti, we saw this campaign of seizures of vessels, foreign vessels. They're sinking often by detonation of explosives in events covered intensively by the media, which in fact raised Susie's profile to become one of the most popular ministers within the Jokowi cabinet. But I guess more broadly, what was Susie Pugiatuti's agenda in that fisheries role in, in terms of illegal fishing? was the main component this seizure of the large scale foreign vessels? Or or did she in fact have a broader goal, a broader agenda in, in how she wanted to shape the fisheries industry?
0: A broader agenda in many ways was to recalibrate, to restructure the industry away from the large scale segment and in favor of middle scale and small scale. So this was a plan. Over a period, um, she told me of two terms. The first step for her to implement this was essentially to get rid of the large-scale segment of the fishery, which are essentially the boats that can fish in the open waters, and that were those controlled by foreign interest, as we have already said. And she also wanted to create the space for Indonesian to invest in the industry, although in the mid-scale. She was. She really did not see the large-scale segment industry as useful for Indonesia at all. So these were a main uh, sort of broad agenda, and she implemented a number of policies towards this. You know, the one that you mentioned, the blowing up vessels, was the one that uh, elevated her uh, to stardom, political stardom. Another one was that she imposed a moratorium on the issuance of fishing license for foreign vessels. And this was a very consequential, actually, policy. And then she banned what is called transshipment, that is, essentially, the transfer of fish catches between boats in uh, open water. And lastly, also quite consequential, was the ban of trawl and seine nets in Indonesia, the Chantrang. Fishing, which was to protect coastal areas. So these were all policies that she implemented quite soon that really shook up the foundations of the industry. That said, you know, there is no doubt that policies that were also driven by a particular personality and what I would say managerial style and her own political ambition. So there's, there's more to it.
1: What you say... Uh, Susie, as as part of this set of fisheries policies sought to eliminate the large-scale segment of the fishery sector. Is that because all of the large-scale vessels were essentially operating illegally or are there other economic reasons to favour the mid-scale and small-scale segments?
0: Well, my argument, which uh, I wasn't able to fully confirm, is that essentially the large-scale is owned, all the large-scale vessels are either directly or indirectly controlled by foreign interest. Therefore, there is no really a return for Indonesia in that sense. Now, well, there is no doubt that many of the large-scale vessels were controlled by foreign interest. Whether it is all of them, that is something that remains an open question. But she also somehow believed that the real benefit for Indonesian people was in the small scale and middle scale. She did not see the benefit of this large scale industry that is the industry that you know, catches most of the fish and that is uh, geared for the foreign market. So there is an element of populist political view in that also, if you so want.
1: Were her policies effective in eliminating this large-scale sector and opening space for for smaller operators?
0: Uh, My work on the fishery industry ended in late 2018, so whether there have been developments since, I am not too sure. My comments end at that time. Definitely there had been quite a strong impact on the large-scale segment of the industry. They had been all by halted by mid-2018. Many of the vessels had been confiscated, some had been blown up, and so on and so forth. So essentially, at one stage, by mid-2018, Indonesia had no large-scale fishing vessels operating pretty much at all. So there was quite a clear impact in that sense. What we did not see, or at least I did not see by the end of 2018, was this structural uh, change taking place in favor of mid-scale and small scale vessels. Really, there was not that big of a growth in the other two sectors by that time. It would be interesting to double check whether there has been since. Also, by the end of 2018, we did not see really any increase in the investment of Indonesians in the fishery sectors. Investment remained quite low and the few investments that we saw was uh, mostly directed at aquaculture or fish farming, not really in the catching segment of, of the industry. So in, at one level, by the end of 2018, what had happened is that SUSE had managed to alt the large segment of the industry operating, probably for very good reasons, but had not really managed to kickstart start. The growth of the other two segments of the industry. So that was quite problematic in many levels.
1: Why do you think the the growth of the smaller scale segments of the industry had, had not blossomed, hadn't attracted investment? Was this a consequence of other policies Susie had enacted or, or were there other factors behind that?
0: The very small scale we are talking about, you know, the, the real efficient man, that fish in Coastal areas and so on and so forth really need uh, government support, and uh, there have been some, but probably not enough to to implement a structural change. Mid-scale, and we are talking about vessels that are around thirty gross tonne in capacity. Really, this is the sector that requires investments from locals. And for what I could gather, talking to some of those involved in that industry. They did not think that the investment was worth the risk. At one level, they thought the political situation was too unstable. And at another level, they thought that actually the investment is extremely substantial. And there are other sectors in natural resources in Indonesia that are safer and that lead to greater returns. Therefore, there was really not that much interest in investing in mid-scale fishing in Indonesia.
1: Beyond this, this lack of interest in investing, uh, I, I imagine the, the type of transformation Susie sought to achieve in the fisheries industry must have trod on the toes of many powerful actors, certainly the, the local intermediaries and, and their security force contacts, presumably, just at a minimum. What sort of opposition did Susie encounter in, in her efforts to push through this suite of policies? <laughs> she she
0: definitely stepped on many toes. I think that's uh, that's fair to say. And there was at one level, as I say, because of her policies that really did shake the industry. But another level also because of her approach and what emerged essentially her inability to build alliances. She worked alone. So she was very very single-minded in her approach, and she only trusted a handful of people, really about four or five that I could name. And she pretty much saw anyone else either directly or indirectly linked to the fishery mafia. Now, that may be true, may not be true. I don't know. My job was not to ascertain that. But the reality is that it created a situation that she was alone fighting against pretty much everyone else that was included in the fishery industry. And that includes the owners of the large-scale fishery, both in Indonesia and abroad, but also includes quite a large number of those in- involved in the meat-scale industry. And pretty much every fishery association, they used to play quite a large role in the politics of the industry, but they were completely cut off during Susi's time. And also quite a few of academics, especially those linked with the Bogor Institute of Technology, the Maritime uh, Department out there, Again, this is a, a, a group of scholars, a, group, a social group that usually plays quite an important role in the politics of the fishery industry, but they were completely cut out by Sousa. She also clashed heads with a number of politicians and, uh, and so on and so forth. She created a condition in which it was very difficult for her to operate, regardless to whether her policies were sound or, or were not sound and especially a decision to ban every vessels that had been built abroad to operate for Indonesia. And that is regardless to whether the owners could actually prove that they had legally bought these vessels and therefore they were not controlled by foreign interest. That was a decision that in many ways created a situation that led to many of these groups opposing uh, SUSI kind of coalescing into an informal coalition, if you so wish. They may have had different reasons to oppose SUSI. For example, the Bugos academic, it was because they were no longer able to access grants from the government to do research, or they were no longer offered jobs in the ministry. Others, the fishery industry, because they'd been cut out from negotiation and so on and so forth. So that there were there several reasons and different reasons as to why these different groups opposed Susie, but eventually they find somehow a way to more or less indirectly sort of cooperate to oppose her through a number of different strategies that we saw taking place.
1: Sure, I mean I was going to ask you how how did their opposition manifest?
0: And I was able to to identify a few, some were more successful than others, and of course. Not every single set of actors was involved in every strategy. For example, right at the beginning of Susie's term, there was definitely a strategy of bribing, trying to bribe Susie and trying to bribe few of those that are very closely associated with her. And this was confirmed to me by those who are involved. And here we are talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, you know, obviously those involved behind these attempts of bribing were potentially, although I wasn't able to confirm that, but potentially the largest investors because we're talking about big money. Another strategy that, that, that was quite prominent uh, at the beginning of Susie's campaign was a, what I labelled smear campaign. Essentially, try to tarnish Susie character and some, uh, there was this campaign going around in social media and so on and so forth saying that she was corrupt or that she was like favoring her own lobster business in the industry, although she had no longer been involved in the industry for quite a while. And even another smear campaign that sort of labeled Susie and Jokowis as working on the behest. Or the United States, so, but th- this web they were not successful at all and kind of faded away pretty soon. The strategies they instead had some degree of success, and that in hindsight may have played a role in Susi not being reappointed. Is the lobbying, uh, popular mobilization, and media strategy in general? These saw a lot of actors involved. Lobbying was particularly prominent throughout Susi's term in office. Those that lobbied were mostly members of the commission for in the House of Representative, that, as you know, is the one that supervises the agricultural, plantation, forestry, and maritime and fishery and food affairs sectors. So those that were part of that commission were lobbied quite a bit. Also uh, lobbied a lot uh, were Vice President Jesus Kalla and Luhut Pandyei Tan, back then the Coordinating Minister for Maritime Mal- Affairs. This is because they were A, senior to SUSI and B, close to Jokowi. And they were lobbied by a very non- large number of actors. The, the fishery associations and across the board, all of them were extremely active. According to what they told me, I could count up to forty meetings that they had in the period of eighteen months with members of the Commission for Kala and lahore So really, really active, but also, also academics, you know, act some of the activists, and so on and so forth. So there was a concerted effort in lobbying senior politicians to to do something if you want about Susi, and this something changed all the time. At the beginning, uh, the attempt was to get her removed from her position fairly early on in in one of the reshuffles. And when that proved uh, impossible for political reasons because Jacobi just could not replace her most-liked minister, the effort turned into making sure that she was not going to be reappointed. And in light of what has happened, one wonders whether that is part other reasons as to why she was not reappointed.
1: Now, I mean, you mentioned Susie's leadership style was not one of building coalitions that apart from a few trusted associates, she was in fact suspicious that, that most others held vested interests. Whereas it sounds like the interests arrayed against her were particularly active in in seeking to to build a coalition to oppose her at all. You know, that sounds intuitively like that would have uh, dire implications for the sustainability of the measures she put in place. Has that turned out to be the case since she was removed as fisheries minister?
0: As I said, I mean, my study of the fishery industry ended a couple of years ago. But I think even by no no longer focusing on, on the industry so closely, it seems to me clear that... The longevity of Sisi's reforms or approach is basically no longer that. They're not sustainable. If we look uh, to begin with, with, who has been appointed in her place, you know, Eddie Prabowo, it's clearly a, a, a political appointment. You know, he's very close to Prabowo Subianto, he's, he's a man of the establishment
1: was he someone, sorry, that you came across in your research at all?
0: No, no, he wasn't mentioned amongst the, the palpable individual. But, you know, the, the, the sort of mould fits with what the fishery associations wanted to have at the helm of the ministry. And But I think for me also what is indicative is the change in the narrative. And, you know, during uh, Jokowi's first term and also because of Susi, and in many, many ways because of Susi's, Appeal with the public. Jokowi's narrative was really focused on revitalizing the fishery industry and, and really getting control of the industry and wrestling away from the foreigners and combating illegal fishing and so on and so forth. So there was really a, a dominant narrative at that time. The narrative has been all by been replaced by the narrative of creating a friendlier business environment in the sector. It is all about business environment now. So that has already changed completely the approach in engaging with the industry and the sector overall. And, and already, you know, what, what was the, the signature policy of SUSE, that of sinking foreign poaching boats, uh, has been ended. It's no longer there. So Clearly, that has changed the deterrent for foreign poaching boats to enter Indonesia. Even more so, currently, the, the ministry is formulating regulation on how to promptly release illegal foreign fishing vessels that are caught in Indonesian waters. So again, you can see that the, the old dynamic of the approach of engaging in the industry and specifically engaging with large-scale vessels coming from outside seems to be changing. And that tells us a lot about the, the longevity or the sustainability of SUSE policies. Yeah, I mean, there is not much sustainability there at all. What would be interesting to assess is to see, in maybe in a year or two, to do a new assessment of who owns the large vessels operating in Indonesia and to see whether that has changed substantially since SUSE. And I would extend that to the mid-scale, really, because during my investigation, something quite interesting came up. Because SUSI, as we have already mentioned a few times, all by-ended the large-scale segment of the industry, then there were some indications that the mid-scale might be developed. And in some of the outer islands, according to a couple of members of the ministry I talked to, some mid-scale boats were being built however they could not really ascertain who was financing those boats where was the capital from those boats coming from and uh, both of these senior members of the ministry i talked to speculated that it is possible actually the money was coming from abroad again so it will be interesting to see it's it's a it's a tricky business
1: that's fascinating. I'll certainly uh, wait to read your, your next paper on those sorts of issues. Um, I mean, uh, but before we do conclude, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times that maybe we could see the lobbying sort of against Susie by this coalition of business interests as a factor in her removal. Could, could I push you a bit further on that? I mean, are you able to be more specific about what you see as the circumstances of Susie being replaced in Jacobi's second term?
0: I think so. I think there is reason to think that the lobbying has played an interest. I mean, as I said, I know for a fact that both Kala and Luhut did approach Jacobi and asked him to remove Susi, and that was not possible. Uh, There is every reason to believe that they lobbied continuously, for her at least not to be reappointed. And we should also probably frame that within the broader politics of Jokowi. During his first term, whether it was his choice to appoint Susi or not, he benefited from Susi's popularity. And there was this, on the surface, apparent good relationship between the two. Uh, Susi was convinced that she was going to be reappointed. She told me Jokowi had promised her that he will reappoint her, and that he will give her completely green light in the industry, uh, and that did not happen. So the question is, why did not happen? One of the possible explanations is because in his second term, second and final term, Jokowi no longer needs Susi's popularity and is more interested, maybe, in the economic development of the country or in else, uh, and therefore. Yeah, there is maybe more weight given to all those interested that are posed to Susi, rather than the, the brownie point that maybe he got in being associated with such a popular minister. There were also, I must admit, there were also a lot of questions raised on whether Susi was actually able to understand the nuances of running such a ministry and the and nuances of developing a fishery industry beyond stopping illegal logging. There's no doubt that she focused, according to many, even according to her supporters, she focused far too much on illegal fishing and not enough, for example, on the welfare of the fishing forks or else. And maybe also quite a few of her supporters did not agree with that view that Indonesia did not quite need a large-scale segment of the fishery industry. So that way also those questions floated around.
1: I mean, we've spoken a lot about Susie today. Uh, it would be remiss of me not to ask, you know, what were her ambitions in the fisheries minister role and and what is she doing these days?
0: My understanding is that currently she's, she's gone back to, to run her, her line. However, I am pretty sure that she would welcome the opportunity to re-enter politics. She clearly enjoyed public office. She enjoyed the attention that came with being in the spotlight. And I think that became, over time, one of the major drivers of her politics and policies in many ways. And she clearly had political ambitions of her own, although she didn't confirm that so clearly. As I mentioned already, She was convinced that she was going to be reappointed as a minister of the Fishery. So I am sure that that came as a disappointment to her. And also, my impression was that she had even set her eyes on higher political office, vice presidency,
1: probably. So a possible left field candidate for 2024?
0: Who knows? Maybe we haven't seen the last of Susie.
1: Now, finally... It's been a fascinating talk with you, and you've outlined this situation where you have these reforms that perhaps looks unsustainable at this stage. Their proponent has been removed. Can we draw any broader lessons about the prospects of reforming so-called mafia-controlled industries in Indonesia, uh, you know, like, as you've mentioned, illegal logging, illegal mining, and, and some of the other Illegal resource extraction that we see in the country?
0: It's probably be unfair to just focus on Indonesia. I'm from Sicily and I know how difficult it is to counter mafia controlled industry, even in developed democracy, uh, never mind Indonesia. There's not much I can add to what very prominent Indonesians such as Verdi Ardis, Aspinall, Marcos Miesner, Ian Wilson have said in, on this sort of issue. Maybe the specificity of this case study teaches us that uh, coalition building is important. And uh, such a gang ho approach and going solo and changing everything all at once, it's very difficult to, to be successful. So maybe incremental changes and coalition building are two strategies that might have a better long term prospect. It is difficult for everyone to to uproot mafia-controlled industry.
1: No doubt, no doubt. Uh, and Fabio, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for joining us to share your insights on talking Indonesia today. It's been great.
0: Thanks very much for having me. Bye.
1: That was Dr. Fabio Scarpello, lecturer in politics and international relations in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Auckland. We'll link Fabio's article, Susie versus the Rest, in the Asian Journal of Political Science in the episode notes. Talk Indonesia returns on 19 November with my co-host, Dr. Gemma Purdy. Until then, as always, you can find the entire archive of Talk Indonesia episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talk
0: Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.